Abuse, childhood abuse, is a deep, life-changing trauma. It's a life-altering trauma. They would not do background checks. They wouldn't do anything because we're family. We know everybody. We don't want to offend anyone. You showed us that he was not a monster-looking guy. We like to say that, right? Like, yeah, we can pick him out of a crowd. No, you can't. And now, the safety zone. Welcome to another episode of The Safety Zone. I'm Melinda Ron. I'm here with Mike McCarty, CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions. And Mike, we have a very special guest today, David French. And I've commented to David that he is probably one of my favorite writers, which of course is in his bio. But David is a American political commentator, a former attorney, and I will add prolific writer. <laughs> Besides being a Harvard graduate, David served as a major in the U.S. Army and served in the Iraqi War, of which we're thankful for his service. He was a fellow at the National Review Institute and a staff writer for the National Review from 2015 to 2019. And David now serves as senior editor of The Dispatch and is a columnist for Time. And I might add, his latest book is Divided We Fall, which is a wonderful book. I've been reading that one too, David. So welcome, David. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, David. I, I, I just want to start by saying thanks for writing this story on this Canica camp and everything that really happened there over more than a decade. Right. It really, it hit close to home for me, not just professionally, something I've done for 30 years, but my old, oldest three sons were in camp, a Christian church camp, about five or six years ago, and I got a text message from my oldest and he said, hey, we got something going on. And one of the counselors was really trying to isolate one of the boys in their cabin and coming mm -hmm. in late. And fortunately or unfortunately, the conversations that we've had around our dinner table by what I've done for the last 30 years, my kids have been privy to hearing lots of things. And so they've got a heightened sense of awareness. And the good news is we were able to immediately get a hold of the camp, intervene, but it doesn't mean anything really happened after that. There was no right. criminal record trail. Most groups still aren't doing reference checks or they don't know who to call. But I just think the timing here in, in camps have been, they missed a season last year. We're mm -hmm. getting ready to reopen. We've talked a lot about this perfect storm with everything that's been happening with COVID and mental health and suicide and isolation and child abuse and domestic violence numbers are high. But one of the concerns that we're seeing with the church and ministries is you've lost a lot of volunteers and you're going to have to backfill these positions. And we're starting to see this kind of rescinding of some of our policies. Well, we should wait six months, but we got to fill these positions. Mm. There's a concern as the camps start to open again this summer. We hope that we're, we're filling these with positions of folks that have been very well vetted. So when we send our children off, they're safe. So Anyway, why don't you give us a little background on how this particular story came across your radar? Yeah, so this came to actually my wife, Nancy, and to me beginning last year. And so essentially what happened is that at Canicut Camps, which a, a lot of people are familiar with, some people are not, it's one of the largest Christian camps in America. About 25,000 kids per summer go through Canicut Camp. And Many years ago, and it was discovered in 2009, 
they had a super predator, a person who had risen through the ranks at the camp and was abusing young boys for year after year after year after year after year at the camp and left just a trail of destruction before he was eventually discovered in 2009 and put in prison. Well, this happened way away. So the main camp is outside of Branson, Missouri. Happened way away from media. You even have a hard time finding any Christian media talking about this, much less any like mainstream media. It just sort of happened, was over, and a mystery. What happened here? And so a lot of the family members of victims and victims were, as so often happens, had entered into confidential settlement agreements that included broad non-disparagement agreements. And so what ended up happening is this very large, very important Christian institution had a super predator in it, and nobody understood how it happened. Nobody understood the basic fundamental facts. And so a victim's family reached out to Gretchen Carlson, Gretchen Carlson, former Fox anchor, who is working on non-disclosure agreements that This is something that often happens that enables more abuse, that silences victims. So they reached out to her about the non-disclosure agreements, these confidential settlements and non-disparagement agreements that the camp was entering into with all these victims and said, is there any way you can provide any help? And Gretchen Carlson knew my wife, Nancy, reached out to Nancy. Nancy started digging into the story. And eventually, as we started digging into the story together, we came across a victim who had refused to sign the typical non-disparagement agreement, broad non-disparagement agreement that the camp pressed the victims to sign and wanted the story to be known of what the camp knew, when the camp knew it. And to make a long story short, we had this very, just really emotional meeting with this victim and his family. And at the end of the meeting, we had the contents of a thumb drive that contained the documents of the case and the documents, including emails stretching back 10 years before this counselor who was named Pete Newman, who ultimately became a camp director, was arrested reporting that he was nude four-wheeling with kids, playing years after that, swimming nude with kids, playing basketball nude with kids, running through the park nude with kids, hot tub ministries, just all of these red flags waving. And the red flags were waving so obviously that in 2003, several years after the initial reports, the the camp actually entered into a sort of like a, what you might call a disciplinary agreement with him. And, and you could tell from this disciplinary agreement that they were very concerned about sex abuse. In fact, they had a Q&A section of this agreement where they asked him to explain What was wrong with the Catholic sex abuse scandal? What was bad about the way Bill Clinton treated Monica Lewinsky? I mean, they were concerned about sex abuse internally at the camp, but then to the rest of the world, they were promoting this guy as the face of the camp, promoting in promotional materials that he had this unbelievable love for the Lord and just poured his love out on these kids. And so the camp is pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. And what ends up happening is he becomes somewhat of a celebrity within the world of this camp. And so families would compete for him to stay in their home. And in their own homes, he would be grooming kids. He was pushed out to speaking engagements. And so he had all of these victims. He victimized people internationally. He victimized people across straight lines. And so the whole time, on the one hand, year after year after year, the camp is getting reports 
of this improper activity. They received a, a mother came forward and said in 06, her daughter saw him molesting a kid, called the camp. The camp did nothing. In 2008, we have an email where, or we have a document where he's bragging about his hot tub ministry and the, and the director of the camp is seen that. And all of these red flags from 99, 2001, I mean, just keep going and going and going. And on, so you had on the one side, all of these warnings on the other side, just pushing him out as this star, as this star. And then in 09, I think the most poignant and devastating in many ways aspect of the whole story is in 09, when he's finally exposed and he, he confesses and ultimately pleads guilty, we got copies of emails sent to the director, of the, the CEO of the camp saying, we warned you in 1999. Wow. We, we warned. warned you in 1999. And they're just heartbreaking to read, just heartbreaking. And so it was really important, I think, to explain how this happened. How did this happen? Because people need to learn from this. They need to learn from this. I know it's in the camp's interest to try to push everything and to shove it under the rug and just keep going. But how did this happen? And it became obvious over time that it was a story very much like we see in other Christian ministries, where on the one hand, you see somebody who's doing something great for the ministry. Yes. They're doing great work for the ministry. And then on the other hand, you get these complaints and you have these worries and you push past the complaints and the worries because he's doing something great for the ministry. And then yes. the thing with Christians that's so tough is then it's then it's doing great things for the Lord. But then there are these complaints, but he's doing great things for the Lord. And yeah, I could go right. on and on, but that's the, <laughs> well, David, that's the basics. And David, you mentioned something. And when I was reading your article about, like you said, he was basically the rock star. Yeah. And I thought as a believer, and I've grown up in mega churches. I think in particular in our evangelical world, for those that are in, in evangelical, we really have this creation of rock stars. Yes. Ravi was a rock star. And, and we tend to push our either the pastors or leaders up. And like you said, it's that not only what they're doing for the Lord, but that's their rock star. And if we don't have our rock star, we're probably going to lose our camp or we're going to lose people. And it's mind-boggling, but hearing you detail this out, I think of the leaders of Bill Hybels and Bob Coy, and, and the list goes on, and, and they all had that status, didn't they? We've actually seen one after another, after another, after another of bad scandals involving rock stars. Yes. <laughs> we, so Jerry Falwell Jr. Yes. and Liberty. Yes. I mean, here was a guy, he was raising so much money, friend of the president of the United States, but there are warning flags Yes. Waving. It's almost like somebody was standing out outside of Liberty's front gates, just waving something that said warning flag. Exactly. Carl Lentz at Hillsong. Yes. Again, another big personality, somebody who was doing great things for the Lord. And then Ravi Zacharias. I mean, yeah. until he fell, until we learn more about, I even hate to use the term fell because yeah. it appears like he had been doing a lot of bad things for a very, really oh, long, very time. long time. Like a double life, uh, really. Go yeah, on. a double life. Mm -hmm. He was arguably one of the world's most effective Christian apologists. Yes. And then here you have this camp, which is huge, which reaches so many people. And they had this just darkness operating in the heart of it. And they and the instrument of that darkness, they were promoting as this powerful influence on kids' lives. And if I had to say there is a, if there's a thread running through this, and it is constantly this, totally misplaced trust totally 
misplaced trust. I, I did a long investigation piece about how Ravi Zacharias Ministries responded to individuals inside the ministry who were raising doubts about Ravi. And in talking to people, what I kept running across was this conviction that I know Ravi and Ravi would not do this. Like this conviction. And and I even talked to one person, an, an executive inside RZIM, and, and he was broken, like, because no. he was one of those people who had that conviction. I know him. He would not do this. And you see this misplaced. And so it's not just this sort of mercenary thing that says, he's doing so much good, I'm going to give him a break right. on these right. warning flags. It's also this totally misplaced yeah. trust. Because you, you feel like there's no way the person I know wouldn't do that. And it's... Right. But I think part of the problem in ministries, I've worked for many, and they, it's hard, it's, it's that accountability structure. And oftentimes the leader, Mike, you talked to this very well, they're, they're, they're it, even with some of the boards. It's just like it, the combination, really, like you said, misplaced trust, right, Mike? Well, yeah. And if you develop your board or if you have family members, I, you know, I see a lot of this in the ministry side. Who's going to point the fingers, right? We have very basic, simple policies that say, hey, if you want to volunteer at church with our children, we don't allow spouses to work in the same room together. Why would we say that? Why would we have policies like that? Because we know the inclination will be one to cover for the other. And David, that's a powerful statement talking about totally misplaced trust. And this is not exclusive to ministry. We see this in schools. When I speak about domestic violence, I say it is rare when you interview a neighbor after somebody has murdered their spouse and maybe killed themselves. I said, rarely does the neighbor go, oh, I saw it. I saw it coming. What they typically say is, I can't believe it. I can't Mm -hmm. believe he would do that. One of the things I noted was you did a great job creating this visual of super predator Peter Newman for us. And you showed us that he was not a monster looking guy. We like to say that, right? Like, yeah, we can pick him out of a crowd. No, you can't. These guys have behaviors that are monstrous, but they often look like everybody else. And this guy sounds like he looks better than everybody else. Well, that's a key thing you just said about better than everybody else, because some of these, a lot of these predators have a charisma. Yes. It's one of the things that enables their predation. And so that charisma not only allows them to groom people, it also protects them mm-hmm. because they're casting sort of this this charisma as the godly man or the this charisma of the powerful leader. And so that charisma enables their predation. So they're not like some creepy guy in a van. Not that those people don't exist, but that they're they're the person that's out front and they're the person who sort of has the most charisma in the organization potentially and i think the trust thing is key on two things don't trust other people also don't trust yourself in this sense don't trust your perceptions yes don't trust you're not omniscient you don't know it's one of the reasons why i said i've said again and again after the ravi situation in investigating canacuck it is so important to immediately, when there is an abuse allegation, to retain an independent investigator. Independent. And the other thing you were saying, Mike, about family members, you are not in a good structure when the only people that you are, quote unquote, accountable to 
are members of your own family or people who get paychecks from you or prestige from you. Right. Bingo. Um, th- this is a really important point. A lot of times you'll have these celebrity, these celebrity figures and everyone around them. It's not just that they get a paycheck from that person. They get prestige yes. from their association with that person. Yes. So if that person goes down in a very real way, all of the people around them go down. They lose their livelihood, potentially. They lose their prestige, and their prestige may be even more important in some ways than that paycheck. So there's an enormous incentive to make everything okay. Mm-hmm. And this can even extend to boards. I've put it this way with people. People say, what what, it, what about a – how should you think about compo- the composition of a board? And I say this. It is a warning sign if – I get more prestige from being on the celebrity's board than the celebrity gets from me being on the board. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> In other words, the, if you're going to be held accountable by a board, the board has to have a certain stature above the person. Yes. But a lot of these boards are like, it's my buddies yep. and it's the people that I get something out of being on your board. Exactly. I get that association. Well, that's not accountability. Right. It's a prestigious placement versus mm-hmm. exactly. Well, that's a, yeah, that is a great point. Well, I'm a for-profit company, but we had created advisory boards several years ago. And I, when I mentor young entrepreneurs, I always tell them, you have to have them, but do not fill them with friends and family. Um, <laughs> we've got former Secret Service. We've got FBI. We've got leaders from all different realms. And I'm going to They'll take them down. <laughs> oh, well, they get me more trepidation sometimes, <laughs> prepping for an advisory board meeting, and I pay them nothing. They do this out of the goodness of their heart, but they make my company better because they will not... They will not not tell me something because they're fearful of how I'm going to react to it. Right. Sometimes I'm like, you, you got to be able to to take that and make yourself better. Here's a good sign. It's a good sign that if you if you're dreading vaguely dreading every board meeting, <laughs> it's kind of a bad sign if you're going. I cannot wait to get together with my pals. <laughs> Great That's point. so true. That is so true. You know, David, too. You were talking about the misplaced trust. And I know that in all the churches that Mike deals with in Safe Ministry, part of the company that he has, I just know from my own personal experiences that I had a, I've always grown up in mega churches, but I was at a small church for a while and they would not do background checks. They wouldn't do anything because we're family. We know everybody. We don't want to offend anyone. And I'll tell you, it, it was kind of shocking to me because I thought, No, we really don't. We don't know what Mm -hmm. they're doing online when they get home. And yet, it's interesting that that kind of waves in, I think, especially on the church side in the the church community, whether you're small fellowship, medium, however large the congregation is, that's kind of how we look at it. People Mm -hmm. have been here for a while. Yeah, they only look at maybe a new person coming in. We don't, Right. we just don't think that, oh, nobody's going to do anything. We know them. And, And that's a key. Well, one of my priorities is, as a person, as a human being, I want to be trustworthy, mm-hmm. okay? But one of the ways in which I try to be trustworthy is that I'm trying to never demand that you trust me. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm not offended by accountability. I'm not offended by exactly. transparency. That if you want accountability and transparency in your ministry policies, in 
Good. I'm I'm all aboard. I think that we often have sort of have this zone of offense around ourselves where we say, well, I'm not going to be very trusting of others. But how dare you question me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's exactly. A, that's a problem. So I think that one thing about building being trustworthy is that you're not offended by accountability. Exactly. And you're you're certainly not offended by and you cooperate with transparency. Yes. And that, I think that's absolutely critical just sort of in our own behavior as we work and operate in ministry spaces or corporate spaces or military spaces or wherever. Yes. You know, David, I, th- I found one of your opening sentences that was really powerful. You said, this is the worst Christian sex abuse scandal you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And I read that, and I went back and read it again. And I, we touched upon these non-disclosure agreements, but for a listener that may not really understand some of the legal complexity behind this, this is more than just saying, hey, we were a little ignorant. We didn't understand the behaviors we were seeing over the last 10, 12, 13, 14 years. This is actually being more on the offense and using tools available to you legally. So can you help us understand that a little better? Let me sort of explain kind of in um, just real world terms how this all happens and it works. So let's suppose you're running a ministry and you find out that not only that one of your employees has done terrible, terrible things and Several things happen at once. One is you're shocked and appalled that the employee's done something terrible. The other thing that happens is you immediately start to fear for the future of your ministry. Okay. So then in comes a lawyer and a lawyer comes flying in, riding in on the white horse for you. And the lawyer has one job and one job only, and it's not advancing the kingdom of God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The the lawyer's job is to defend your interests, Mm -hmm. period. Okay. And what they're going to, they're going to come in and they're going to look at all the evidence and they're going to look at everything. And often what they will say is this, you have some exposure here. If they're a good lawyer, they're going to say, you have some exposure here. You have this red flag you missed and this one and this one and this one. If you go to trial, you're going to get butchered at the same time. So what you're going to want to do is settle these cases. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to get all of these victims to agree, not to disparage the camp in exchange for the money that we're going to pay out. Okay. And so what that ends up doing is you think, oh, you kind of have this, I get to, you. the way you rationalize it is you say, I get to provide justice to the victims and I get to preserve the ministry. Well, here's how it works in real life. So in real life, what then happens is the victims come to the come to the table, so to speak, in a, like when mediations or whatever, they they've just been through the worst experience of their lives. They are suffering. They are scared of a trial because it's going to expose everything, include you know all of the details of the abuse. They don't necessarily want the public to know about at all. They don't know for sure that they're going to win a case. They don't know for sure if their attorney is telling them the truth. They're going to say, "I'm pretty sure you're going to win," but I can't guarantee you're going to win. And so they don't know for sure they're going to win. They know they're going to go through just a hellish experience in the trial itself as they're going to get pounded by opposing counsel. And so then they come and they and there's this kind of stack of cash and they've got the stack of cash and they say, this cash is yours. There's a couple of conditions. You can't tell anybody how much we've paid you or that we've paid you at all. And you can't say anything bad about this camp or this organization. Mm. Well, you totally can see why people agree to that. 
And because then if they're the other side's playing hardball, they'll take that stack of cash and they'll like sort of metaphorically pull it off the table when you balk. Here's all this money. Oh, look, it's going good. It's going by. Say goodbye to the money and say hello to this big, horrible trial experience. If you don't agree to not say anything bad. And so there's two ways that this is really terrible. Way number one is what it ends up doing is you make a snap decision in the heat of a moment to solve a crisis that many people regret almost immediately. Okay, because you see almost immediately that what you've just done is you've agreed to, for good reasons in the moment, for good reasons in the moment, you see that what you've agreed to is a situation where you cannot any longer be part of accountability and transparency. You're shut off. So that's for abuse that's in the past. Now, there's another situation like the Gretchen Carlson situation where it gets even worse, and that is you've reached a settlement with an abuser and you can't say anything. And the abuser is still there abusing. Yes. And that's that's where that non-disparagement or non-disclosure agreement just keeps enabling abuse. And this is something you see in corporate America all the time. You might have a toxic executive or a toxic celebrity. And, and when you sort of peel back the layers, you'll see, oh, wait, in 2004, they had a settlement. In 2009, they had a settlement. In 2015, they had a settlement. Each one of them with a non-disclosure so that people keep going to work for this person with no clue what they're walking into. So you have no accountability for past abuse, or it diminish, let me say, it diminishes accountability for past abuse. Mm-hmm. It diminishes transparency so that we can learn uh, what things that happened and what went wrong, and it enables future abuse. And to make it all so much worse, they're imposed under circumstances in which the victims themselves under maximum stress. Exactly. Maximum. Trauma. Now, yes. Trauma, stress. Now, some of them, some victims, every people are different. Some victims, they're fine not talking about everything. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about everything. Right. But that's why my view is that tr- the confidentiality requirement should go one way. It is the, uh, the abusive entity is silent. The abused victim has is free to speak or not speak. The abusing entity maintains confidentiality. The abused victim has freedom. So they may use that freedom to remain silent. Totally fine. Totally fine. Whatever you need to heal. But when you have this obligation of silence onto an abused victim, and that obligation is often imposed in a moment of maximum stress, that's unjust. And I have to ask, both of you, I to me, I have a problem with there even being an NDA in a ministry, because shouldn't a ministry want accountability and transparency? There are some non-disclosures that are good, like not disclosing donor identities, true you know, things like that. Mm. So, so there are certain kinds of confidentiality that are important to maintain necessary privacy mm-hmm. of individuals. But when you're talking about non-disclosure in the context of illegality, mm-hmm. I do have a real problem with that. And didn't Ravi have one, or, or, right? Am I right? Of the abuse there, right? Right, right. So it, there was, boy, that story. <laughs> so <laughs> Is that another part podcast? Two. Yeah, part <laughs> yeah, two boy. with David. Okay. <laughs> this, and this, this is where oh. a woman named Lorianne Thompson came forward and disclosed that Ravi had groomed her for a period of time and solicited inappropriate images. And and Ravi not only resisted her allegations, he sued her. 
So he turned around and sued her, I believe under RICO, Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. I mean, just really? pulled out. Really? Under RICO? Pulled, RICO. Pulled out like wow. nuclear wow. nuclear legal weapons. But oddly <laughs> enough, even though he sued her, he paid her money to end his case. Okay. But there was confidentiality. and But what was it made it all even worse is that Ravi, internally, when he was sort of explaining himself, he refused to hand over his own technology internally. He refused to hand over his own technology, cell phones, etc. And so here was what made it worse is he refuses to hand over his own technology, which, again, you were talking about like someone just standing with a giant red flag in front of a gate. There, there comes somebody right in front of RZIM waving a giant red flag. And here's another one. His technology was his. It wasn't his company's. Right. Okay. So hmm. all of his tech was his own tech. Yep. And so he was refusing to hand it over and the company couldn't really force him. Well, they could say, hand it over, you're fired. But it's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. So he, they were in a very difficult position. So there was that huge red flag. And I got it. It's funny. After all this happened... I had always been somebody who I didn't like company technology. I had always had my own tech because I'm a little bit of a tech snob and like what the company was going to provide me wasn't very good. So I was like, no, I'll, I'll get my own. And uh, it, it really, after I was, as I was reporting out the Ravi Zacharias thing, I thought, you know, I should have. I mean, it's a better practice to you yep. when I'm doing business to do business on a business computer. And so I, I swapped out my personal private Alienware desktop for a, uh, a business computer. But um, but they treated me right. It's very good. Well, that's good. Yeah. But with Ravi, you had the confidentiality. You had the wet red flags of refusing technology. And so many of these things, like in hindsight, you go... How is it that people could not, but then what they'll turn around and say to you is, but I knew him. Right. It always comes back to that, doesn't mm -hmm. it? I knew. Yeah. Because for me too, I thought the thing that I always thought was strange, but probably like everyone else, I didn't know, didn't know Ravi, but that he owned massage parlors, <laughs> which as a Christian, I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, right. people go to the spa and, you know, I've gotten massages, but I think just as a Christian leader, I found that different. <laughs> And what you would yeah. expect. Yeah. There's so many things about it that you're thinking that that's unusual that yeah. he spent extended time later found out that he spent ex extended alone time in Thailand and Bangkok. Yes. And took um, his masseuse with him from what I understood. A, had, right? Traveled with a masseuse like his female had carved out, carved out a an exception to sort of the Billy Graham rule, you yes. know, never being alone with a woman. Yes. For his masseuses. Yes. And so you had all of this, and then when they actually were able to get some of his technology, not all of his technology, they discovered very quickly why he didn't turn it over, because it was full of evidence of misconduct. And so again, just keeps going back to this this trust point, which if somebody's sitting here and they would and they were on a polygraph, they would say, I spent so many hours with him. I never saw anything like this. In the time we always talked about integrity. We always talked about purity. We always talked about guarding our hearts. We always, 
And yeah, his things that he did seem now like total red flags and then in that context seem quirky. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, it just is always going back to this point. This, you just keep going back. But if you knew, I was even talking to the current president of Canacuck and I was reading to him Joe White's testimony and deposition about Pete Newman and how he was saying, you have to understand that there was this waterfall of appreciation for Pete Newman. And we had these two bad drops and we didn't think we it poisoned the whole thing. And I'm sitting there going, these two bad drops were nude incidents with kids. I know. Like, that's, that's a bad thing. <laughs> and the president of Canacuck, I was reading him Joe White's testimony even after all these years. And he was like, yes, right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, no, no. What were these bad reports? Nudity. And I asked him, I said, well, uh, is this the kind of conduct that other people engaged in at the camp? I mean, were you, was nude four-wheeling or basketball or was that something that other counselors did? No. Not a common, it not. it's not a common thing at Christian yeah. camps. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, oh, and you know, you know, those crazy 2000 era Christian camps when, yeah. <laughs> you know, people were playing nude basketball. <laughs> yeah. Or no, that was the seventies with the streak. I think it was right. Right. 70s. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, there was reason to believe this person had real problems. And in fact, as the disciplinary plan shows, they were concerned about sex abuse. Unbelievable. But I noticed in your writing how they shift their language, which we see this a lot, right? You're talking about hot tub Bible studies. You're talking about nudity swimming, new basketball, four-wheeling, running. There's just all of this nudity. But when it comes across to the administration, they were talking about skinny dipping. That is really kind of putting a nice little polish on. That is not nude behavior. That's just crazy kid behavior. Right. So there was this spin, and I noticed it, it toward the end of the article, then little attacks at even other kids who had come forward. I think there was one female that had come forward yeah. and starting to challenge her faith. And so there were some very kind of systematic just wait we've got we've got more coming on this and but this is again this is something that um is a relatively common phenomenon especially in ministries where if you are raising an issue with an individual or an institution that is seeming to it seems to be very successful at reaching souls for the kingdom or accomplishing kingdom purposes you're automatically often going to be cast as you're opposing the work of the lord that you're putting a roadblock, you're putting a speed bump, you're putting an obstacle in front of the work of the Lord. And so, especially if that's like a mom is calling on behalf of a young kid, well, we've got, we're saving souls left and right. We've got people, lives being changed and hear this story from somebody young, themselves vulnerable, maybe because they saw things at camp that deeply troubled them. Maybe they had a bad camp experience and other counselors will say things like, well, that person, they were a, tr a trouble, you know, they were trouble. And so you're always looking for ways to discredit mm -hmm. the person who reports. And, and, and this is human nature. You're immediately defensive yes. of your own institution, of your own interests. This is the way human beings are. And so that's why I say you have to have a policy that says abuse allegations automatically trigger independent investigation automatic yes it's not a judgment call you don't sit there and go oh 
boy, we could really lose a lot of influence if we go down this rabbit trail. Should we do this? No, it's just independent investigation immediately. Exactly. And in those circumstances, what that's going to do is it's going to remove your self-interest from the equation, which is so that's what I say about don't trust yourself because you have self-interest. Mm-hmm. You have self-interest. If if somebody came to me today and said, I have information about this or that colleague at the dispatch where I work, every molecule of my body would not want it to be true. Right. I would, yeah. I would not want it to be true. Yes. And that's just how we are. And so we have to uh, control for and account for how we are when we're making policies and when we're putting protections for people in place. I think it's inherent within the Christian community, right, to trust on how often we take everybody at face value. And Melinda and I have had these sidebar conversations, even with some of our high-level partners. And if somebody tells them, hey, I was on this president's Secret Service detail, and that is a true story. And I asked one of my friends who led one of the uh, presidential details that this person was supposed to be on. He said, I'd never heard of him. <laughs> but there's just this taking at face value what you tell me. You know, I'm a big trust but verify kind of guy. I, yeah. The years between law enforcement and, and doing this kind of work, you, you just you have to verify. And I think <laughs> as a pastor or people specifically in ministry, David, like you were saying, and I know Mike and I talk about this a lot, where they're kind of in protection mode of the ministry. No matter how many souls you're 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 saving, no matter how affluent your church is or how big your church is, it still comes back to the heart of Christ. If you if you really put it in a spiritual sense, look what you're doing to damage the witness of Christ in these cases, and look at what you're doing overall. Because uh, Mike, you have said it takes one time. And mm-hmm. that ministry that, I mean, people have suffered, kids, lasting scars. Um, and, and David, I know you know this well with your wife. And yeah, it's not a one-off, but yeah, that ministry is destroyed. It is far better to have prevention methods and do what you need to do. Abuse, childhood abuse is a deep life-changing trauma. Yes. It's a life-altering trauma. Yes. For some people, they can't escape it. I mean, there's a, uh, we tell our story and there's a 2019 obituary of a Kanakuk camp survivor who took his own life. And, and just, so these, this, it is a life altering trauma. Now his family, his family would say that didn't, would not say he took his own life. They'd say Mm Kanakuk took his life, but the, the, it is a life altering trauma. So this is the kind of thing where the, Protection is of paramount importance, even if, and it doesn't matter who it offends. Here's one thing I wish that Christians would do is believe your own theology. Because your own theology says that mankind has fallen. That's what your own theology says. Yes. Jesus said, you who are evil, (laughs) you know, like we got problems. Exactly. Problems. Called the sin nature. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who sits there and says, okay, well, some people have problems, but not Pastor Bob. No, Pastor Bob is, he has a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. And so I wish we'd believe our own theology. Exactly. And our our own theology would tell us that we need to put safeguards. We need to put guardrails in place. And it's not being cruel. It's not being mean. It's not being offensive. And 
one of our responsibilities is as humble servants of of Jesus Christ is to not be offended exactly. and not have pride mm-hmm. about when accountability measures are applied to ourselves. Exactly. And that's a red flag in of itself when we are, right? <laughs> it certainly, it can it certainly be. Is, would make me raise an eyebrow. Exactly. <laughs> well, we touched upon some of these in a Christian Post article I wrote, I don't know, eight or nine months ago, and it was funny. One of the comments was, well, Jesus didn't do background checks. And I was like, um, well, Jesus could see your heart. He didn't need to hire safe hire solutions. <laughs> it is interesting. We get a lot of pushback from people commenting. It's astonishing. I, to me, but- oh, I know. I know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it's Jesus. That's a new one. Like the person who, who created us and sees in every Jesus corner of our bet. soul <laughs> and who knows not just our past works, but our future as well. You didn't run it through the F. You didn't run any names through the FBI database, there, did you? But yeah, it's no, it, there is an enormous amount of resistance. Yes. Again, I, I say it again. We just need to believe our own theology. There's just an enormous amount of we have a we have a culture of celebrity that builds people up. We have tribalism. So then, not only do we build people up, but we we pride ourselves by sort of being part of that pastor's flock or part of this leader's movement. So we build people up. We protect them with our own self interest, and it's a huge problem. And all of this stuff is sort of our sin nature yes. corrupting in the, the way in which we interact with the world. Yes. And we, by God's grace, by God's grace, he's given us the ability to perceive and respond to that sin nature mm-hmm. and to build the kinds of systems that you'll never make anything perfect. I mean, you can't make anything right. perfect, but you can build the kind of systems that more appropriately seek justice Yes. In any given circumstance. I mean, one of our, our core commands as human beings, what does the Lord require of you, O oh man, what is good is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. And I think of it in this circumstance. Humility says, I can't figure this all out in my own power. I'm not omniscient. I can't look into somebody's soul and know if they're an abuser or not. Loving kindness means I want to be kind to my campers, to the people in under in my ministry, to the people I interact with by protecting them. Exactly. By protecting them as much as I can from injustice. And that's acting justly as putting together these these mechanisms that A erect guardrails against failure and B, if the guardrails fail, properly yes. compensate victims and do, and does pro, the proper thing to pay restitution and to facilitate their healing. Yes. Really loving your neighbor mm-hmm. as yourself or loving one and putting them above yourself is the care of what as Christians and, and ministries we should be doing. Mike, we've I know we've gone over our time, but oh my goodness, David, how we would love to have you back. And I hear more <laughs> articles are coming. So, you know, really. Yeah, I'd be happy to join you, but this has been a real pleasure. And I really appreciate you uh, chatting with me and having me on. And yeah, Mike, thank you. have some final thoughts? Yeah, I just, uh, it sounds like you got more coming. <laughs> and that, that's kind of what we're doing ourselves here at Safe Hiring, Safe Ministry. We're just, we've got a lot of things coming out right now. We want to stop this. We want to help church and ministries and youth serving organizations 
be able to create these cultures of prevention. So, David, thanks for, so much for coming on and sharing. We look forward to seeing what's coming out here soon and having you back. And thanks for the work you're doing. Yes. Yeah, so uh, well, thank you. And thank you for all that you guys are doing. It's just so vitally important. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.